I want to start by reading from John chapter 1. This is not the text for the morning, but uh, it'll hopefully be the springboard for the text. John chapter 1, verse 45, says, uh, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, to which Nathanael replies, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, what in the world was wrong with Nazareth? Philip here bullet points a resume unlike any other. We have found the person Moses wrote about, the person the prophets prophesied about. This person is from the lineage of Joseph, the kingly line. He is the one, the long-awaited Messiah. It's a standout resume, but all that hits Nathaniel's ears is Nazareth. What's wrong with Nazareth? Well, I think it's actually probably pretty simple. Nazareth was normal. It was a small town, like hundreds of others, nothing distinctive about it, nothing world-class, not leading the nation in anything, just an ordinary place with common people. Certainly not the kind of place for the Messiah to be raised. You know, I live just uh, 20 miles from normal. Illinois. Anybody been there? <laughs> a few years ago, a young lady from the neighboring town of Oblong took a liking to a young man from Normal, and uh, soon an announcement appeared in the paper, Oblong woman to marry Normal man. <laughs> Nazareth was the Normal of Palestine. It was the kind of place that didn't have a whole lot to celebrate, but once a year they'd get together to celebrate anyway, just like small towns do today. In Morton, where I'm from, we have our annual pumpkin festival. Just, just finished that. Any of you from a small town? How does your small town celebrate? What do you do? Go ahead. Let me hear you. Somebody, what do you guys do to celebrate? What? Potato Festival. Town and Country Days. Rodeo? Okay. Creamery Picnic? That sounds interesting. <laughs> Anything else? The Dutch Supper. That sounds good. All the way in the back. <laughs> Silvercliff Days. Pig War Picnic. Yeah. That's, that's small town life for you. Nazareth was probably the kind of place that people would tell jokes about. You know, you might be from Nazareth if. You can fill in the blanks. What was wrong with Nazareth? I think it was just a little bit too normal for the Messiah. You know, it's a good thing that I was not put on the committee to plan our Lord's 
uh, birth, life, ministry? Because I would probably think something like this. I'd think, you know, this is the King of kings, the Lord of glory, the creator of all. Surely he should enter the world in the seat of power. Maybe a place like Rome. But then come to think about it, he's also the divine logos, the wisdom from above, the truth, the light. Maybe he should enter the world in the city of intellectualism. Maybe Athens. But you know, he's also the high priest. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Maybe he should enter the world in the seat of religion. Maybe Jerusalem. But you know, I wasn't on the committee. And God in his wisdom decided that his son would enter the world in an unassuming place called Bethlehem. Now Bethlehem means house of bread. Dates back all the way to David's great-grandpa Boaz. It was an area surrounded by wheat and barley fields, and when they harvested, they needed some place to go to process the grain. Bethlehem became that place. They built threshing floors, storage bins, house of bread. Today, we would probably name it Grain Elevator. So when God came into the world, he came into a little one motel agricultural community a few hundred at most in population, not unlike 10,000 towns dotting the U.S. today. The place of our Lord's birth was as normal as it comes. You know, Jesus didn't stay in Grain Elevator. His family settled in Nazareth, also a town of just a few hundred, and doing what? Well, we know that Jesus' father, Joseph, was a tectone, usually translated carpenter. Only back in those days, carpenters didn't do the kinds of things that we associate with carpenters today. They didn't have wood frame houses, for instance. A church father tells us that the bread and butter of a tectone was ox accessories, yokes, plows, harrows, carts. So Jesus worked from the time that he was a child until he was about 30 in a farm implement place. So Jesus was born in a town named Grain Elevator, and he spent most of his working life in a John Deere dealership. Now, can anything good come out of a place like this? Why Nazareth? Well, to paraphrase Abraham Lincoln, God must love normal people because he made so many of them. And could it be that God also delights in using normal people? For some reason, God didn't plan that just a few elite, talented, super smart people would do the lion's share of his work but that each of us in our normal way, in our unassuming way, in whatever little slice of the world we find ourselves, would do the work of God around us. And you know, I know of no better example 
than the answer to the first of several trivia questions that I have for you this morning. Of all the churches that the Apostle Paul wrote to in the New Testament, which was located in the smallest town? Think about the churches. We know it wasn't Rome or Ephesus or Thessalonica cities. Well, the answer is uh, the Colossian church. For a time, uh, this is, was a thriving community because located on a main trade route linking the Ephesus, uh, Ephesus, the Mediterranean coast with, uh, with Persia. But their fortunes changed when this trade road was rerouted and Colossae was bypassed. And in the process, the historian Strabel tells us that Colossae became an out-of-the-way, obscure town. Any of you from a town that has a similar history, perhaps? Um, maybe the interstate bypasses your town. That could be devastating for small towns, or doesn't put an exit where your town is. Um, maybe a mine shuts down, or maybe a manufacturing business closes, or maybe just simply technology replacing manpower on the farm. When these kinds of things happen, uh, what happens to the community? What about the church in Colossae? Was it a renowned flagship church of its day? Well, think of some flagship churches back in the day. Uh, Jerusalem, the founding church, kind of the hub church. Um, uh, uh, Antioch, the missionary sending church. Fast forward to uh, uh, flagship churches that come to mind today. Uh, Colossae would not make the list. It was an unassuming, under-the-radar kind of church. In fact, a couple of verses tell us that it was actually a house church. And furthermore, for several hundred years before the first century, not a single event worthy of note is connected with Colossae. There were no historical markers. Uh, no one raised the blinds on the tour bus as it passed through town. I suspect that the major source of excitement was um, maybe sitting on the front porch listening to rust grow on ox carts. So what am I describing? normal. The kind of place that many of you are from. The kind of place that many of you will find yourselves in after you leave Montana Bible College. Do you know that three out of four grads that are seeking a pastorate will find themselves in a small town? Tuck that away. Uh, couple years from now when you graduate, send me an email and tell me where you're at. The vast majority of pastors in their entire lifetimes never serve a church larger than 150 people. Normal. My hope is that Paul's perspective this morning will encourage us. Let's turn to Colossians. And uh, as you do, I have a second trivia question for you. Um, this small town was actually the recipient of two New Testament letters from Paul. What was the, the second? Well, I gave you a lot of time to digest the last slide, 
And uh, there we saw that uh, the, the church met in Philemon's home. Uh, Philemon was a resident of Colossae. Um, he was a prominent member of this church. What does Paul think of normal? Well, let's start right at the beginning and, and let's see. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the folks in the off-the-beaten-path, insignificant, nothing-happening town of Colossae. To who? The holy and faithful brothers in Christ. In just a few minutes, we're going to see that uh, Paul was very measured in, his, in this use of the word faithful, which makes it doubly significant, I think, to see him using it in reference to those who are in, the, in, in a more obscure kind of place. You know, I love meeting people in small towns. If you're from a small town, um, I hope I get a chance to meet you. I'm going to hang around after chapel, be here for lunch today. I'll be here at the conference, the leaders' conference, uh, Thursday and Friday this week. I'd love to get to know you. Even if you're not from a small town, you think you might end up in a small town, or even if you're from the city. I'm from the city, so I'd love to, love to meet you. Come talk to me. Uh, my kids tease me all the time about my affection for small towns. They say, Dad, you won't eat out anyplace unless it's in a small town cafe. And they say, you won't watch a movie unless it's about a small town. Well, I, I pretty much have to plead guilty. Uh, but you know what I love most about, the, about small towns is the kind of people that I meet there. People quietly living out their, their Christian lives. I found that small towns are repositories of faithful people. Not long ago, I was visiting with a, a couple, and uh, they had just cut their vacation short a day because they were needed in their church on Sunday. Faithful, faithful people. In verse 3, we find Paul heaping words of praise on this small town church. He tells them that he's thankful for them. In verses 4 and 5, he commends them for their faith and their love. Verse 6, for their fruitful ministry. So this little spot in the road is not viewed by Paul as second rate. He's not saying, if you could just be more like the church in Jerusalem, or maybe the church in Boise. I mean, he has enormous praise for, for this church. He sees qualities here that are worth commending. They may not have a 40-acre campus. Uh, they may not have a multi-million dollar budget, multiple services attended by thousands. Their pastor may not have 50,000 followers on Twitter. But these things don't seem to matter to Paul. Now, Paul also has gushing commendation for those who are quietly serving in normal. Now, before we go on in our text, everybody look up at me. I don't want you to be cheating here. And uh, look at the screen, actually. So a church leader is named in Colossians. Who, who was he? Oh, very good. Now, did you just read that now, or did you know that before? <laughs> um, Verse 7 uh, tells us that you learned it from Epaphras. Epaphras was the one who helped nurture the commendable qualities we've been reading about 
but I'm guessing that probably many of you didn't know his name, just like perhaps the names of the pastor and leaders from your home church are not known beyond the county line. Notice how Paul describes Epaphras in verse 7. He calls him our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ. Can you imagine any better words being said about an unknown by an internationally known Christian? Notice that Paul calls Epaphras a dear man. He has affection for him. He calls him a fellow servant. No condescension, no viewing Epaphras as a lesser guy because he's from normal. What I see here is Paul viewing Epaphras as an equal in ministry, a fellow servant. Years ago, I was a new young pastor in Corn, Oklahoma. There you go. And uh, Warren Wiersbe came and spoke in our church. Um, author of nearly 200 books, uh, including commentaries on nearly on every book of the Bible. You've probably used his commentaries. Uh, internationally known preacher. Uh, soon I received uh, a letter from, from Dr. Wearsby. This was before email. And then I got another. And then a little later, I got another. You know, we've been corresponding and talking back and forth now for more than 30 years. At first, he signed his letters, Sincerely, Warren Wearsby. Then, your friend, Warren Wearsby. Then, Warren. And then one day, after several years of corresponding, he wrote in a letter, The next time you write, please make Dear Dr. and Mrs. Wearsby into Dear Warren and Betty. It takes less Inc. Now, what was he doing? He was treating me like a fellow servant, an equal, though his ministry was exponentially bigger, treating me in normal with the same kind of respect that he had for people in much larger places. A dear fellow servant, a faithful minister. Can a, can a person from normal be considered just as faithful in Christ's service as a person in a bigger place? Are the words, well done, good, and faithful servant, proportionate to size or place? Years ago, Francis Schaeffer captured the heartbeat that we find in Colossians when he penned the words, in God's sight, there are no little people and no little places. Students, remember this, because many of you are going to spend much, if not all, of your lives in normal. Now, a few minutes ago, I said that Paul was measured in his use of the word faithful. I find it interesting that in all of his letters, if my count is correct, and you can check me on this, Paul refers to only four individuals as being faithful. And would you believe that three of the four are connected to Colossae? Which uh, gives us the next question. 
who are the other two? And I'm going to let you try to figure that out, do the research. Or you can ask me later, I might tell you. Now, what am I doing? I want to assure you that I'm not trying to make a case here this morning that people in normal are more faithful than people in bigger places. The case I'm trying to make here this morning is that size does not factor into how faithful a person is deemed to be in the eyes of God. And I think this ought to hearten us because Scripture tells us that the basis for our eternal rewards will be, is our faithfulness. And uh, we can be faithful even in a small place. Now, there are some hints in Colossians as to why Paul considered Epaphras to be a faithful man. And I find five in this short letter, and I have time to only say a few words uh, about each. First of all, in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, we've already seen that um, this congregation had learned from Epaphras. Now, the word learned in the text is uh, a derivative of the, from the word disciple. So, Epaphras discipled. Disciplers, as you know, pour their lives into people. They invest in people. Steady, systematic, disciplined. The word disciplined also comes from the same word. We all know that discipleship usually isn't very glamorous. It's that week in, week out, normal kind of stuff that we do in ministry. And it's one of the reasons why Paul calls Epaphras faithful. By the way, the navigators in our day are perhaps uh, maybe the best known or at least one of the best known discipleship ministries. And uh, their discipleship program, their best program is called what? Their 2-7 program. Go to their website. This is what you see. Notice how 2-7 is pretty prominent. And 2-7 is found where? Look at Colossians chapter 2. Let's actually start with verse 6. It says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted, built up in him, strengthened in the faith, as you were taught. Who did the teaching, the rooting, the building up? The strengthening. Well, certainly Epaphras did, and probably some others in the Colossian churches as well. I find it striking that one of the most respected discipleship ministries of our day patterned their ministry after the ministry of a first century church that was located in Normal. Now, could it be that a church in a place like this has an advantage when it comes to discipling, that it might potentially disciple better. Think about uh, folks who attend larger city churches. I grew up in one, I, I know. How much do people in larger city churches see each other through the week? Probably not at all. They just see each other on Sundays. 
How different it is in a context of social intimacy like, con like, like Colossae when we rub shoulders with each other through the week. When we have opportunities for iron sharpening iron, when we have the opportunity for mentoring for our lives to be lived in front of others as examples, this is discipleship. And you know, it's harder to do this in, in a, a, an urban kind of context. And by the way, this is what I see happening at Montana Bible College. Um, I love what your website says about discipleship. I have shown this slide all over the country. I think it summarizes discipleship perhaps better than anything that I've, I've read. It's highly unlikely that the quality of discipleship that happens right here can happen in places that are much bigger in size. So discipleship in a context of social intimacy is... Uh, is a great thing. Can this kind of discipling ministry happen in normal? Can it happen even if you are normal? You might say, well, I'm not a very dynamic person. I'm not a super gifted preacher, uh, Sunday school, small group leader. Well, neither was Epaphras. Uh, he was not a teacher of the, the stature of Paul. He certainly wasn't out on the speaking circuit like Paul was. He was a regular guy. But he's being used of the Lord in a discipling ministry, quietly making a difference in his spot in the world. And I know that this is already something that's happening through many of you, that you have ministries here locally where you're pouring your lives into others. Maybe you're teaching a Sunday school class or helping with uh, youth ministry, maybe a small group ministry. I think the, the Lord would say, job well done. Colossians 1 verse 7 reveals a second evidence of Epaphras' faithfulness as he was a servant. I don't have to tell you that uh, when you live in normal, you have plenty of opportunities to exhibit this quality. Most ministries don't have a lot of paid help. And so when uh, the carpet needs vacuuming, guess who does it? Um, when the walks need sweeping or on a day like today, shoveling, guess who does it? Um, when the bulletin, the church bulletin needs typing, uh, when rooms need to be set up or torn down for various events, um, Lots of opportunities to be servants in normal. But you know, when we do these kinds of things in places of obscurity, where no one is watching, where maybe few express appreciation, without calling attention to ourselves, without complaining, we're giving evidence of the fact that we are being faithful in the eyes of God. Chapter 4 reveals a couple of other evidences of Epaphras' faithfulness. Verse 12 says that he was always wrestling in prayer for his small place. Now the word there means agonizing. It's the same word that was used of our Lord's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And verse 12 says that Epaphras prayed this way always, constantly in prayer for his church and community. Verse 13 says Epaphras was working hard 
a fourth evidence of faithfulness. That word there means heavy toil to the extent of pain. So when we're working hard in obscure places, uh, when no one is watching, it's, it, it can be tempting sometimes when we're in an obscure place where no one is watching to, to be faithful with our work ethic. Um, that's something that God sees as, as faithfulness in his eyes. And again, I know I'm talking to some hard workers here today. Uh, some of you are juggling school and work and ministry. Um, I think God would, would say, job well done. And then fifth, we know that Epaphras was a faithful leader and uh, don't have a lot of time to uh, dig into this, but let me just say it. When there was a grave doctrinal error that was threatening the church in Colossae, and if we were to read through Colossians, we would see that they had some serious questions and um, just some, some difficulty understanding Christology. Uh, when Epaphras saw this, he traveled all the way to Rome to get counsel from Paul, who was sitting in a prison cell in Rome. Now, that's a distance of about a thousand miles, some of it by sea, and uh, you travel a thousand miles today, that's a long distance. Think about traveling a thousand miles back in that day. But Epaphras loved his people, and he wanted to protect them from false doctrines that would hinder their spiritual development and ultimately destroy the church. And so he went to great length to keep that from happening. And this stirred up, I think, enormous respect in Paul. Imagine Paul receiving Epaphras in his prison cell and seeing how committed Epaphras was to doctrinal purity. And I have to think that that led him to conclude that Epaphras was a faithful man. And I hope that you are already demonstrating this kind of passion for clear theology as you study here at Montana Bible College. So God loves to use normal people. And my hope as we wrap up here is that you're thinking something like this. You're thinking, man, this isn't rocket science. Um, I think even I could do this. And with what kind of results? Well, we know that Epaphras and the Colossian church were being used of God to make a big difference in a small place. You know, it's very easy to overlook or to minimize the importance of day-in, day-out ministry done by ordinary people like you and me. And adding to the difficulty can be um, maybe hearing or reading about other ministries where something out of the ordinary is happening. But you know, that's precisely why we hear or read about those things, because it's out of the ordinary. If, you've had, if you had a normal Sunday school class last Sunday, if you were the teacher and it was a good class, but it wasn't anything out of the ordinary, it's just, just a good, solid class, you know that's probably not going to get written up in social media. But you know that's where the vast majority of ministry is. And my hope is that Colossians this morning has helped to elevate the importance of the ordinary. Normal can be a wonderful place to grow in Christ.
It can be a wonderful place to be used of God. And it can be a wonderful place in which we can be found faithful.